On today's episode of The Raise Podcast, I spoke with Lynette Marshall, the president and CEO of the University of Iowa Center for Advancement. This episode was recorded on March 18th, 2020, and we were both adjusting to our new work-from-home environments. I loved learning about Lynette's journey from a fifth-generation family farm in Illinois to becoming one of the most highly respected advancement leaders in the country. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here we go. Greetings, Ray's audience. It is a privilege today to host Lynette Marshall, the president and CEO at the University of Iowa Center for Advancement. Lynette, welcome to the uh, to the Ray's podcast. Brent, good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who may be catching this via video, you would see that uh, neither Lynette nor I are in an office. We are all in the midst of our uh, new transition to a work from home context in light of COVID-19, the coronavirus. Lynette is in Iowa City, right? And I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, actually in Rhode Island today. Uh, and so we're, we're all adjusting. In fact, yesterday was, uh, was the University uh, of Iowa Center for Advancement's first uh, really fully remote day. Is that right? Right. So yesterday we asked everybody who could work from home who didn't absolutely have to be at their desk or in one of our buildings to do that. Um, Iowa City's been a bit of a locus for uh, the cases in Johnson County. Um, And so we are trying to be especially vigilant in light of that fact and in light of the fact that we've got a major academic medical center here in town. Well, in light of all of that, thank you, Lynette, for making time and uh, we will absolutely touch on current events, uh, but at the same time, I think it's important for our audience to understand the backgrounds and the traje- uh, trajectories of leaders in the in the field. Uh, and I would uh, really love it if you'd be willing to share uh, the summary version of your journey, and then we can dive into some of the specific uh, parts that that I think are are really relevant for for the group. But uh, my understanding is that we. Uh, share an upbringing in a relatively rural Midwestern context, and we both were early participants in the 4-H club and the FFA. Uh, and so with that, I will kick it to you. Uh, who, was, <laughs> who was Lynette growing up, and, uh, and, and what, what led you to go down this, this path of philanthropic leadership? Sure, thanks. Um, so Lynette growing up was the fifth generation on a family farm in North Central Illinois, Um, the farm was settled in the early 1850s by my ancestors, and that's always been an important and proud part of my background. Um, I went to a small rural school, Sparland, uh, grade school and high school. I graduated with about 27 people in my high school graduating class and was one of two from that class who went off to college. Um, I went to the University of Illinois and majored in agriculture and um, really had a magnificent experience there. As you say, I had had the benefit of 4-H and FFA when I was growing up and- Lynette, I'm gonna pause really quick as we all adjust to work from home. Soren, can you just show Lynette that um, we just got some light bright. Donner, can you show Miss Lynette what you made? Okay. Awesome. You know, my husband said he feels like he's doing Legos in the garage, but his toys are kind of different. He's got woodworking toys. So yeah. Do you have any erector sets? That's what he said his, his toys felt like. Well, we will uh, edit around that or we'll just keep it in, but we're uh, (laughs) we're all navigating. Um, I did want to ask, so fifth generation farm, 27 students in your graduating class. I graduated with 67. We were a huge class by Postville, Iowa. By comparison. <laughs> but, um, but two people who went to college. You don't probably show up your senior year in that context and decide you want to go to college. So you clearly had something along your journey where, where that even became a goal, which at the time had to seem... Uh, wild to some of your classmates or just totally out there? I mean, when did you know that you wanted to go to college in the first place? You know, it was an always, always an expectation. There was never a day that I remember making that decision. My parents always had that expectation for me. 
My mom um, is a registered nurse. Um, and while my dad went off to college, he lasted six weeks because then he got sick and um, his dad also got sick. So he had to come home and help run the farm. And so while my dad didn't have the benefit of a college education, um, my mom, you know, was like many women of her era and was either a nurse or a home ec teacher or um, a regular teacher. And, um, and yet it was still very much the expectation. So I was fortunate to have that and to have really, considering how small our school was, a lot of um, cultural benefits from my family and you know, some other families in the community in terms of 4-H and FFA and um, high school activities. We were a very small school, but we had lots of activities to keep ourselves busy with. And so tell me about, uh, I guess, when your fifth generation family farm, maybe 4-H and FFA is even more of an expectation than, than college for many people. Uh, and, and so what were those experiences like? And, and I'm curious, you know, I, uh, I served as president of our 4-H club when I think I was in seventh grade. And I feel yeah. like that was my first leadership experience yeah. and, yeah. you know, conducting a meeting with my company today versus conducting uh, a meeting, uh, you know, in 4-H. There's, there's a lot that we learned. Uh, and I know you did as well. But what was that experience like? So I wouldn't say this if our audience were faculty members, but there's been many a meeting I were in with faculty where I wished they would have been in 4-H. <laughs> those, those meeting skills, you know, they were just part of what we did, of course, in 4-H and FFA, but that really does, I think, provide a, um, a terrific grounding for someone and, um, I, you know, I did the typical things in 4-H. I did cooking and sewing like girls did then. I was in a girls 4-H club and there was a, a similar boys 4-H club and my mom was a 4-H leader um, for part of the time I was growing up and all my three siblings all went through 4-H and FFA and we all got a great deal from those experiences, whether it was public speaking contests or meat judging contests or horticulture contests or parliamentary procedure contests. Um, you know, it, it, it really was a great, great youth leadership activity. And I'm, I'm happy and proud to be able to continue supporting um, the National FFA Foundation with some of my volunteer time now. Do you still have your FFA jacket? I do. <laughs> do you? Me too. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. My mom, uh, my mom has done a good job hanging on to, to all of that. And yeah. uh, it comes in handy from time to time on Halloween if I'm in a pinch. So um, <laughs> you'll have to go to the national, uh, national convention sometime and wear uh, it again. I would love to. Um, and, and so you had the opportunity to go to the University of Illinois. Um, was that a difficult decision, recognizing that you knew that higher education was going to be a part of your future? Uh, and why did you choose Illinois, or was it pretty straightforward? Uh, and then how did that experience unfold? That actually is a great FFA story as well. Um, I was fortunate enough to be in the state public speaking finals for FFA one year. And there were three finalists, and I came in third out of three. And um, after the day after the um, competition, I went to one of the judges who was the assistant dean for academic programs in the College of Agriculture. And I said, you know, what would you suggest? What could I have done better? I'm going to do this again. I was a junior and it was between my junior and senior year in high school. And he didn't give me any speaking tips. He recruited me. Um, and within about 30 minutes, I called home and I said to mom, mom, I'm going to go to Illinois. And she's like, what do you mean? I thought you didn't have any interest in going to a big school. No, I'm going to go to Illinois. I'm going to do this. And so it was, you know, that personal connection as a result of um, somebody who took their time to volunteer to be a judge for a public speaking contest. And as it turns out, then I enrolled in the College of Ag and my, my, um, student job, I worked for four years in that office of academic programs. And then that's exactly how I got into fundraising. The, the fellow who ended up being the associate dean that I worked for for four years um, became dean at the time I was graduating from college. And 
Um, part of his hiring package was the ability to create a fundraising position, which was one of the very first ones on the University of Illinois campus to be associated with a college. And he encouraged me to apply and I got it. And I haven't done anything since. That's amazing. So that's a great, tell me about year one of that first time that the new fundraising role is created. I'm sure advancement wasn't even a term. I mean, what did you do? What was the goal? I mean, did you have a list? I mean, how did you even get started? Yeah. Yeah. Boy, they, they paid for a lot of learning (laughs) and it was on the job completely. Um, so I distinctly remember arriving at the office on December 9th was my first day, um, 1983. And, uh, I had an office, which was lovely, uh, that they gave me an office. Um, my window was a window well, and the view out my window well was the trash dumpster for that building for Mumford Hall. Um, but it was also just an empty old gray desk, um, and a typewriter. And that was it. And the dean was traveling for a week. So (laughs) I thought, well, now, what do I do? So um, like any good networker, (laughs) I I thought, well, maybe somebody else does this on campus, having no idea. Um, And I did find that there were three other people who had something a little bit similar. Um, All three of them moved into fundraising from other jobs, though. So I made appointments with both of those. and. My student undergrad job had been working on behalf of a scholarship program in the college called the Jonathan Baldwin Turner Scholarship Program. And so I knew there were donors to that program and I thought, well, maybe I should call those people. (laughs) So I sort of called them cold and talked. And at that time, donor records for the college were on six by eight cards. Um, And prior to my being hired, it was the job of the least senior secretary in the Dean's office to type in Um, on those cards when somebody made their $100 Dean's Club payment. And I didn't have any access to the university database. Every time I needed information, I had to call someone at the University of Illinois Foundation and ask them for donor history or whether a gift had been received. And and that went on for years, honestly, Um, because this was really at a time when the University of Illinois was transitioning from a centralized um, University of Illinois Foundation being the only resource to raise money to the colleges starting to hire their own staff. And that has evolved now to the place where most of the actual um, institutional fundraising happens in the colleges at the University of Illinois with the University of Illinois Foundation being a central resource of really superb um, fundraising staff and, and great colleagues. But there are more people now on campus than there are in the University of Illinois Foundation. So you basically self-onboard, you come up with your own training program, you talk to donors, which I love that idea. I mean, good for you for being unafraid to pick up the phone. And I think if all else fails, do stewardship and you learn something every time. Like today. um, (laughs) Yeah, like today. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but I don't know what, what was there a moment early on you knew you loved Illinois. You obviously cared about the ag uh, program. You got pretty connected as a, as a student, but did you really get hooked early on? I mean, was there anything in connecting with the donors uh, that made you think, wow, this could actually become not just my first job, but my career, or was it more organic than that? Um, you know, I think it probably did kind of come about the way you describe over time, it fits my um, interests and skill set and passion so beautifully. I remember going to a, a newcomers case conference session early on and kind of recognizing that it, it felt like a calling. Um, you know, different folks are called to different sorts of things. And I felt like my own experience in benefiting from a remarkable public higher education experience Um, at a really affordable cost at that point in time. I put myself through school um, from savings and student work and scholarships. Um, And, you know, I I have always been deeply, deeply committed to that mission of public higher education. 
and its accessibility and availability to people. So it probably wasn't more than 18 to 24 months when I really felt like, you know, this had no idea it existed, right? I mean, no idea whatsoever, but my life sort of prepared me in unique ways to, to come to that. And um, lucky me to have gotten to do it for mm, 35 years or so now. 23 at Illinois, if, if I'm not mistaken. So from 83 to 06. Yep. And I'm curious uh, when you think about, I don't know, highlights or, or lowlights. I mean, you went through some very difficult times for the ag community during that journey, some very good times as well. Uh, but also you went through uh, a complete transformation from six by eight cards to uh, where we were, let's call it by the mid 2000s. And so mm -hmm. uh, just curious along, along that journey, if anything really stands out as being a favorite memory or a really unique donor visit or just what, what stands out when you think back to that time? Sure, sure. Well, when I think back um, to where things were for Illinois and for lots of peer institutions, let's say the Big Ten, because that's what I'm personally most familiar with, um, I think the foundations and the fundraising organizations and the universities really understood that they needed to really ramp up fundraising work. Um, and that probably, um, you know, it was considered fundraising work at that point in time. We weren't talking about the term advancement and different institutions were doing it in different ways. Some already had existing foundations. Some, like Michigan, were part of the university um, organizational structure and institution itself. Um, some were parts of research foundations. But over time, the institutions kept investing in um, hiring fundraisers. And that, of course, came with people who did major gift work, people who did events and communications and um, uh, outreach, marketing, communication sometimes for, for example, for the college. Um, and then my experience, uniquely enough, actually, was that, gosh, um, by year four, uh, the dean actually said, uh, it wasn't the dean who hired me, but the second dean I worked with said, Lynette, I'm going to put the Ag and Home Ag Alumni Associations in your shop. And at that time, they were sort of part-time staffed by uh, retired faculty who were helping. And we had a really robust ag and home ec alumni program. And so all of a sudden, we became an advancement shop. And um, a few years later, actually started calling ourselves that. Um, and so I would say I haven't, I, you know, maybe 15 years, maybe 12 years of my time in ag, we actually were an advancement program, completely um, collaborative and everybody attending the same staff meeting and, you know, dealing with the issues that are out there. Um, so I had a really great experience with that. And by the time I left um, the College of Ag in 2002, we probably had a dozen full-time staff and four or five student interns that worked with us to help accomplish our work. Um, I versus uh, uh, recent graduate Lynette and Adine <laughs> and the empty desk, <laughs> right? Um, so that was you know that was a joy and honestly that job and the one I have now are the highlights of my career. That that job for Ag was fabulous. So, um, and so go ahead. You, you grow up fifth generation family farm in Illinois. Yeah, get connected via FFA to the University of Illinois. You go, you're a student worker, you get the job out of school, and you don't look back for 23 years. And then you join the University of Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> Could you have so, foreseen that? At what point, you know, in all seriousness, it is very common for people to start working for their alma mater, right? right. And it is that passion. I was a beneficiary of the experience, I can, can sell the mission, I can speak authentically about the programming, but then at some point, um, there really is a professionalization of the sector, right. and people uh, have career aspirations, and sometimes if you want to achieve your career aspirations, it requires uh, making moves to other institutions that are frankly rivals, and so I'm curious, 
it, it, was that a quick decision? Was it a difficult decision? Did you just feel ready? Uh, and how do you, I, I don't know, help others think through the trade-offs between continuing uh, with an organization you know so well versus reaching uh, higher, even if it means going elsewhere? So a really important question. Um, and I would say, honestly, the first uh, 22 years of my career, I never could have imagined leaving Illinois. Um, and I have shared this in a variety of settings, you know, like at the Big Ten Fundraising Institute or, or other places, but I wouldn't have left Illinois if I didn't have to. And um, I think one of the realities of someone's career path is that sometimes you come up um, to a place where you're working for a leader who doesn't uh, respect your expertise and who doesn't want to work with you and that's the position I found myself in in 2005 and 2006 and um, it took me a long time to decide that my only option was leaving my alma mater um, because I was no longer in a supportive work environment and that was really really hard um, I tell my friends it was harder than my divorce <laughs> because it was you know, just this expectation that I had of always working on behalf of an institution that I felt so committed to, but made that decision and um, actually interviewed at a number of different places for some super interesting jobs, trying to sort of figure out what that meant um, to me. I um, interviewed for the top fundraising job at the American Red Cross in Washington, D.C., and for um, medicine at Yale and for a nature conservancy um, principal gifts job and I came home from every one of those and called them back and said I'm really sorry that's not what I'm looking for and I realized that I was a Big Ten girl I really needed and wanted to stay in public higher education um, I was questioning whether I wanted to stay in leadership even at the time because um, you know my self-confidence had taken a hit and um, I was working with a terrific executive coach who said, no, I think, I think you need to give leadership another try. Um, and then found out about the potential opening of the position here at the University of Iowa and that my predecessor, um, Michael New, was ill and that um, he was on medical leave. And so I was able to wait until that position became open and Lucky enough, um, here I am and have been for about 14 years, so. Well, I'm grateful for your willingness to share so openly. Um, and I do think at times, uh, you know, we've, we've spoken with other people where that, all, that relationship with the alma mater when you're not also employed by the alma mater can be so much more pure and, and, and just reflective of your college mm -hmm. experience and then, when you're sort of inside the belly of the beast, it, it, you know, there, there's a lot more to it. And, and I know many advancement professionals have to wrestle with kind of that passion and, and, and love of the institution. But then the reality is it's not about the institution. It is about individual leaders and the importance of individual leaders is so paramount in any organization. Um, and, and, and I'm grateful that uh, that you're willing to share so openly. And, and I am curious, though, when you got to Iowa uh, in, in 06, yes, it was a Big Ten institution, but it's a different institution. It's a different mm -hmm. context. Uh, no ag school. Uh, uh, and, and so kind of what did you walk into and how did you even think about um, getting to know the institution, the culture, the deans? I mean, what an overwhelming, I mean, from my vantage point, to, to, to try to get to know so many things. And then I'm sure as you started meeting donors, uh, you, you probably, like in 83, started calling up some of the big donors to try to get to know people. And they probably expected you knew everything about the place relatively early on. And, and so just like, what was that transition like? Yeah. Um, that, so I remember distinctly the feeling of being at Iowa and thinking after six weeks, I know all these problems. I get all of these issues. None of these problems are new to me, but I don't know any of the players. Mm -hmm. I don't know my staff. I don't know any of the donors. I don't know the university administration. I don't know what it's like to raise money for a hospital and medical 
um, organization. I don't know anybody at church. I don't know anybody at my kid's school. <laughs> you know, it's a lot, um, even for a person who... Um, and putting on a face you know, of cool, calm, collected. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And coming into an organization. So my predecessor, um, they didn't open the search until he passed. And so the whole organization, he passed in April and I came in August and the organization had had interim leadership for 18 months from the board chair. So a volunteer had been serving as chair of the um, University of Iowa Foundation board. And, and so then I come in and everybody's still pretty sad. You know, that's a lot to grieve um, when you have someone who had been an, an internal candidate. I'm only the third president of the University of Iowa fundraising organization. Um, so, Daryl Rywick was the first for 30 plus years, and then um, Michael New was promoted internally into the presidency and, and only served for about six years until he passed. And so that was really hard on the staff um, and coming in and trying to honor him and his legacy and his important role. Uh, they had just finished a campaign nine months before I started. Um, and so there was, you know, there was a lot to do and a lot of healing to help with, I would say. And I don't know that I was able to do that very effectively, but it was something I thought about a lot. Also, from a timing perspective, you joined really right before the financial crisis started. The financial crisis and, oh, by the way, an historic flood in the summer of 2008 right. um, that were still you know, we're in the midst of building the very last building that needs to be replaced from the devastation of that flood in June of 2008. Yeah. And so uh, as we are in the midst of another crisis here, coronavirus, COVID-19, and we are in the early innings. So it's uh, even by the time this is published, there will inevitably be, you know, new headlines that we cannot uh, even guess at this point. But when you think about the... I guess, community level challenges that the, the Iowa City, you know, Cedar Valley went through during that flooding, uh, compounded by the broader financial crisis. I am curious if there are uh, any lessons or reflections you have that could be relevant as we are now in the midst of another unforeseen uh, crisis. Well, I don't think I have any... Um insight that other folks don't already have, which I think is what we've been saying to one another um, in various ways online over the past 10 days or so, which is um, stay connected to your people. So those of us who are in leadership roles, I think we have to recognize not only our own grief and uncertainty and um, displacement, but also clearly that of our staff. And so um, thinking about that, and then um, also staying close to our donors and prospects. COVID-19 feels quite different to me than the financial crisis did. Um, we, we were impacted, as everyone was, from the financial crisis, and we took um, certain measures with regard to employment. We, um, we didn't have to lay off anyone in 2008, 2009, but we did incentivize voluntary resignations. Um, we cut people's um, benefits, the, the contributions we make to their retirement. We cut that in half for about six months. Um, we didn't have raises and some of those sorts of things. Those are all financial implications, which we aren't yet um, anticipating for the Center for Advancement at Iowa anyway. We're um, fully intending to as long as possible, obviously, keep all of our staff on board and we hope um, being able to return to something a little bit more normal. This, this feels, you know, so much different in, in terms that it's really a, a, a health scare for people. And what we're trying to express now is that our families, um, our, our employees should understand that their families are their first priority. And especially in this first week where people are working for home, from home and folks don't really understand what their daycare situations are going to be like and we aren't going to have school until mid-April and the university isn't going to bring students back. Um, 
this semester and commencement's going to be canceled. Um, so this, the safety of, of all of us uh, feels very different than the um, financial emergency, both quite critical, of course. Yeah. And, yeah. and never mind, we've got, you know, whatever's happening in the stock market on top of the pandemic, right. um, which is pretty chaotic. So first and foremost, try to take care of your team, take care of your key supporters. Uh, and obviously, we're in a bit of a reassessment phase and, um, mm-hmm. you know, everything, uh, you know, is on the table. I, I do think what is what is clear is that um we are fitting 10 years worth of behavior change in a sector that doesn't change very quickly into about a 10 day period. Right. Thought of any, I mean, we did a webinar a month ago debating whether gift officers should be remote or not. And now virtually every gift officer in America is remote instantly. And And their support team. (laughs) everything, right? We had an institution reach out saying, hey, we can't, uh, you know, our our fundraisers can't access the the database because of the VPN connection. Is there anything you can do to help out? So it's just shining a light on uh, how, frankly, uh, poorly or well-prepared we are to adapt. I I, I think that um, without a doubt, there will be a, a long-lasting shift in the way that we work, in the way that we think yep. about donor engagement, in the way that we think about, is it okay to engage a donor via a video call? A month ago, we might have said, well, no, we need to go see them. Now we're saying it would be uh, irresponsible to propose going and seeing them. We never right. could have anticipated that, but I do wonder what the long-lasting uh, implications will be for the sector, some of which I do think could be quite positive. Well, and it's interesting because I think in 10 days from now, we'll all be smarter about how to do video calls too, right? I mean, I spent three hours yesterday, you know, trying to figure out how to do some of that um, because it isn't something that I typically am responsible for or or engage in. And so not only will we understand that better, but I'm guessing our donors will Absolutely. too. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, while it, while it would be premature to suggest uh, a silver lining in the midst of, of, of so much turbulence, uh, there are going to be changes and hopefully we can uh, make the most of those changes, whether it's about how we engage our colleagues, whether it's about how we engage our donors, are there ways we can even enhance the donor experience by leaning mm-hmm. uh, on some of these remote capabilities more broadly. Mm-hmm. So lots to learn there and we're excited to to go down that, uh, you know, to go on that journey um, together. I, I did want to ask you though, I mean, one of the things that has struck me in getting to know the Iowa team over the last couple of years is um, not only are you uh, an incredible, highly respected female leader in the sector, leader in the sector who happens to be female, but you also have a very strong female leadership team, which is just so rare uh, in this sector. And I would love uh, your perspective on that. I'm sure you're asked about it, uh, you know, in many different forums, but, um, you know, you were one of the, the, the if, if, if I recall, the first woman to win uh, the public speaking award at, 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 at FFA. I don't know uh, how many women have led uh, advancement organizations uh, like you have, uh, but as you think about your broader team and, and, and stewarding female leaders in the sector as they advance their careers, I, I'd love your, your uh, perspective on that. Sure, sure. Well, I was fortunate to inherit strong women already in the organization and um, I'm deeply grateful for that. I inherited strong men in the organization as well. And I, inho- I inherited it a practice that um, was called, uh, you know, working decisions through what we call the management team, um, which we now, or management group, and now we call it the, the leadership team. But one of the members of my leadership team is a woman who was the chief financial officer when I arrived at the organization. And she has since been promoted to the chief operating officer. Um, she supervises a, um, pretty much everything that isn't fundraising 
uh, or alumni engagement related. And we have uh, recently hired a woman as the head of our IT because she was the best candidate um, and a woman who's head of human resources because she was the best candidate. Um, other members of the leadership team include um, a gentleman that we hired who had a lot of great experience in Minnesota and Utah and California. Um, he covers our main campus development. And then um, the woman who covers all of our health sciences has been on our staff for 20 or 22 years maybe, and was promoted up through the ranks. And then um, the final person is again, someone who we hired in as uh, responsible for um, donor stewardship kinds of activities. And she has been promoted through the years to have a much uh, wider responsibility, including um, all of our alumni engagement activities, donor activities, events, and that sort of thing. So, you know, it wasn't an intentional action on my part to necessarily develop a female-oriented leadership team. Previously, the top two people in development were men. Um, who were in place when I came, and they've both retired. Um, and so some of the some of the women have been brought in in these roles from outside organizations, and some of them have earned their way up to the senior position in their areas um, just as a result of their great work. Um, at one time, it was kind of fun. Actually, at the time of the um, flood, Sally Mason was the president of the University of Iowa, and there was a female provost and a female vice president for research and a female mayor of Iowa City, and I think five or six female deans at that time now. We're not in that particular uh, gender balance right now, but Iowa is a place, I think, where women are really welcomed and can thrive in leadership roles, and no one thinks twice about it. Um, so that, that's been a real joy to experience at the University of Iowa and in Iowa City in general. And outside of your core leadership in the Center for Advancement, you've also been a leader uh, more broadly in the Big Ten. And I'd love if you'd be willing to share a little bit how you've thought about continuing to build and strengthen your professional network uh, over the years. Um, I know you've had some great mentors. I imagine you are a mentor to others today, but would you just tell us a little bit about the Big Ten Fundraising Institute and what that is, why it exists, and uh, if, if any of our listeners might want to learn more where they could turn? Sure, sure. So the Big Ten Fundraising Institute is separate from what some people may know as the Big Ten Development Conference. That's, that's something separate, and I could talk about that if you want. But the Big Ten Fundraising Institute started, I think it's, this is our 59th year. Uh, and fortunately, I've not been um, <laughs> at all of them. Um, but actually, Daryl Wyrick, my uh, predecessor, the first president of the University of Iowa Foundation, was one of the founding um, members of the group that started the Big Ten Fundraising Institute. And it was an opportunity, and it preceded really the Big Ten Development Conference, as I understand it. So it was some of the gentlemen who were heads of fundraising back in the 60s um, at Big Ten institutions saying, we need a way to bring our staff together so they can learn from, other, learn from one another and have best practices and that sort of thing. Um, shared amongst one another. And so that proceeded apace. And then the Big Ten Development Conference uh, came on board where all the um, Big Ten schools bring together 10 or 12 people each summer and it's hosted at a different Big Ten institution. So that developed separately. And I would just say over the almost 60 years, the Big Ten Fundraising Institute has um, evolved to a place where as of now, um, the faculty who run it, and we are all volunteers, um, we pay our own way there, um, we pay the, you know, we, 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 take, we take pride in the fact that this is a voluntary service on our part. And now the Big Ten Institute, uh, Fundraising Institute's restricted to 40 participants each summer. It's an intensive um, three and a half day um, workshop format with five faculty members who do all of the sessions and we bring in 
um, an institutional president most years and also an institutional transformational gift donor as outside once in a while um, consultants to assist with some of the sessions. And we really focus on providing that kind of high level training um, that we hope people who will one day replace us need. So we're not talking about how to do annual giving or how do you set up a cool event. We're really talking about the kinds of challenges that leaders face in this sector and how can we most effectively um, address them? How do we think about them? How do we help um, our senior teams back at our institutions um, rise to the challenge of, of solving those sorts of things? And um, when you think about some of those themes, because that mm -hmm. is probably not uh, unfortunately, what people are going to get at most conferences that they might go to. Right. And also, I'm guessing most of our audience isn't going to be on the list of 40 who gets to 10 next year. So uh, when you, would you be willing to just share, I don't know, over the last couple of years, what are just some of the topics that yeah, sure. stood out um, or, or that even as you think about have been impact, high impact for you? Um, I'd be curious if, if anything comes to mind. That does happen to be one of the folders that I brought to my work from home. So uh, the schedule of events for 2020, um, we always start with a changing advancement landscape in higher ed. And so we have um, a consultant come in and really talk about the very largest trends. And for example, I remember one of the trends that frightened me most a couple of years ago was when he said that um, our competition is not one another at other schools or nonprofits. Our competition are people who are setting up their own family foundations because they're putting their money in their family foundations rather than giving it to us as endowments. And then fundraising from the perspective of a university president. So that would be when we bring in a president or a senior academic. We always do a session that we call ripped from the headlines. And so we take current events that have been in the news in the last 10 days, right before the start of the conference, and sort of address those from our perspectives. Uh, managing expectations of academic leadership, strategies for managing development programs in a complex organization, uh, a transformational gifts study. Uh, Jerry May from Michigan has been on the faculty for a long, long time. This will be the first year that we don't have him, but he would give a stunning reflection on the way that Michigan has raised all the money that they have raised and give some case studies of that. Um, greatest management challenges. Each faculty member is asked to recount two or three of their greatest management challenges and to talk about them candidly. Um, managing your career. So we try to be really um, direct about helping people think about what they want to do as perhaps their next step in the advancement profession. Uh, recruitment and onboarding uh, and diversity issues. So some more of a talent management focus. Um, major gift officer metrics. So David Lively um, has come to be with us um, as well as Dondi Cup for several years to talk about sort of the shift in thinking about major gift officer metrics. How has data changed our decision-making? Um, that's always been a really robust and challenging conversation. Planning and funding campaigns. And then we conclude with a conversation with a transformational gift donor. Um, so that's the curriculum for 2020. Love it. Thank you for sharing. Uh, yeah. And uh, well, I, I um was also wondering as you think about some of those big trends and it's almost unfair to ask uh, in light of the current context what big shifts you anticipate over the next three to five ten years um, but current events notwithstanding I, I am curious you know for example there's been this wave of integration that you've been a part of connecting alumni relations and fundraising changing org structures, a lot of pain and, you know, challenges that you and many peers have gone through. Uh, and we're still in the midst of that wave, but it feels like it's become fairly 
uh, clear, at least for the near term, how that's going to play out, uh, given, uh, I, I think, the well-understood benefits of, of integration. Are there other big themes like that that you anticipate over the next five to 10 years or, or too early to say? Yeah, no, I really think that data analytics is um, much the same thing. We've devoted three full-time positions to, as you know, data science, data analytics, as well as other supporting um, roles that benefit from the expertise of the amazing staff we were fortunate enough to bring in. And I just think we have to get smarter um, about the time of our major gift officers and help them be absolutely as laser focused as possible um, to the potentially best prospects as possible so that we can make the most effective use of their time. We all know how expensive it is to um, make an individual donor call. Um, and it is certainly well worth it if um, it is something that's of interest to that person. But if we can um, make those more effective and if we can sort of shorten the time to um, when someone is able and willing to uh, commence that gift and that support, I think that I think that's next. That's really um, what I'm sort of counting on there. Well, I'm banking my career on it, so I'm right. <laughs> uh, but I will tell you, it, 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 it's not only how do we use the data uh, to make the most of gift officers' time. Yes, that is critical. But now, how do we use new mediums as well? And can we be doing that initial discovery conversation via video? Because all of a sudden, it's become uh, totally acceptable, whereas right. even right. a month ago, it might have seemed foreign to some people. And all of a sudden, every staff member has figured out how to do it. And, and, it, and, and we had you know, put off totally figuring it out on all of our laptops. Well, now we yep. all had to figure it out. And what if you could do, uh, you know, what if you could eliminate unproductive discovery conversations by front loading them in a lower cost, right. uh, but still personalized medium like we're, like we're doing right now. So that's mm -hmm. where I'm hopeful that you can take the data and the new approaches to technology to even further laser focus uh, and, and maximize ROI. Right. Right. And, and I think the second thing, and this, this also is something that you've obviously been helping lots of us think about, is how do we get away from the old annual giving model that is, I'm going to send you six letters every year, whether you've ever given to me or not, because you graduated from a particular program, um, and try and, with a variety of um, techniques, figure out what people really are interested in at the institution and start asking them for that. Yeah. Um, so that may even be, <laughs> that may be a little bit like alumni integration. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. You know, we have actually, um, one of the benefits, we've recently changed our funding model slightly so that the colleges don't have to pay for annual giving out of their budgets which means it's an expense that we've absorbed, but it also means that we have um, a little bit more opportunity to develop the annual giving strategies. And so we'll be working hard on that, I would say, for the next 36 months, trying to right size and right strategy um, that. Absolutely. And, and I think as it relates to new approaches, you know, annual giving, major giving, I feel like historically, it's been somewhat binary. You're either in a major gift portfolio or you're not. And I think uh, given the good research that somebody like David Lively has done, which has resulted in shrinking portfolios, it's meant that there's an even larger group of unmanaged prospects because mm -hmm. the math supports that kind of small portfolio, high touch approach. And so the question that we're all wrestling with is, um, you know, in, in, in the commercial world, the way that you go and close a, a $5 million sale versus a $500,000 sale versus a $50,000, a $5,000, or a $50 sale, there are so many different shades of how you might uh, engage a market and a prospect. And, and I think we need more of those shades uh, in advancement that are still cost effective along the way. Uh, more personalized than 
than relying on mass marketing. And uh, your team has been doing great thinking on that topic. And, and we're, we're excited to continue to, to uh, test new concepts for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess one final question that I would have, I want to be sensitive of time, is uh, you've had an opportunity to work with a variety of professionals, both as direct colleagues and as peers across the sector. And I am curious, when you think about the most successful or, or the most inspiring advancement professionals you've worked with, what stands out? What are the characteristics? I mean, it sounds like for you, it was early on, you just felt that passion and that calling, I think is how you described it. Um, is that what it takes? I mean, are there people who, who don't have that calling but are still doing the work? I mean, can, can, you, can you try to synthesize what has really made people the most successful based on your experience? Um, so perhaps because of my age, and then therefore most of the folks that I know across the country um, were all, you know, approaching or beyond the 60 mark, I would say, I think most of the people that I gravitate to and enjoy and um, think of as models and mentors are people who have that as a calling. Um, I mean, when I think of uh, Jerry May, or I think of Rhea Turtletaub, or I think of um, Rod Kirsch, who used to be at Penn State, or, you know, just lots and lots of dear people. Those that I have um, the most respect for really have this as something that is a passion of theirs. Now, there's lots of other things that you have to have other than passion. <laughs> um, and, and part of that is you know, surrounding yourself with people who do what you don't do well. And I'm really lucky to have some exceptional professionals around me who uh, shore up my many um, deficiencies. And creating that kind of a team and um, knowing that that team shifts and changes over time um, for a variety of reasons is, you know, a reality of a, a long career. And just figuring out how to adapt to that and how to stay connected with your institutional leadership um, and being fortunate, you hope, that they um, care and respect and support the advancement work that you're doing on behalf of the institution. I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and I have to say that uh, we first met at the Big Ten Development Conference at Purdue Right. I'm so grateful for the invitation to to present to that group. That was a really big moment in our, you know, entrepreneurial journey, kind of getting the opportunity to to be on that stage. And uh, and I'm really grateful that you you said said hello afterwards. And <laughs> it's been a privilege getting to know you and that team. Uh, and I have just been so impressed uh, and inspired by your work. Uh, you know, and as a as a native Iowan. I uh, am just grateful for everything that you all are doing uh, at a local uh, state and, and even national level. Uh, and so thank you for making time today in the midst of all of this to share uh, with our audience. And I, I just, uh, I'm really grateful for that, Lynette. Well, I look forward to continuing to watch Ever True Success, Brent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Cheers. Cheers.